You want to turn there in your Bibles? The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes... These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no moral, no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. Don't participate in the things... And these things people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you, li- now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. Lord, we thank you that you do have very clear goals and ideas about what the lives of your children should be like. And Lord, we, uh, we really do want to conform our lives to your word and your truth. Uh, we want to be people who represent you uh, fully and completely in our lives. So we ask this morning that you would teach us, speak to us. Uh, Lord, help us to be open to uh, those areas in our life that the light of your truth may want to expose so that we can grow and be more like you. Or we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, as Paul continues, uh, as his, kind of his typical pattern, the first half of his books tend to be very theologically packed. The second half, second half of his books tend to be very practical and very specific about how to live out that theology. And uh, he continues that that phase here, and really continues with this thought of how we remove ourselves from our old life and live a new life. And Paul was very aware of the fact that as Christians, when we come into Christ and receive all that he talks about in the first three chapters, we are his children, we're made new, we're recipients of God's grace, we're made holy and blameless before God, 
Paul wasn't foolish to think that those things that would happen in us internally instantly became true of us externally. And uh, he'd spent too much time in Corinth, <laughs> which if you've read the book of Corinthians, you know that place was just messed up. And he'd been around the Corinthians for over two years, and he'd come to realize, I don't know if he knew before then or not, but for sure after his experience in Corinth, that saved people oftentimes live very unsaved, ungodly lives. And so he's very careful to warn believers that there needs to be an outward change that matches the inward reality that's true of us. And he continues on with some very specific things in this passage. Um, and he begins uh, really completing the thought of, of chapter 4. Uh, he says, imitate God, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And I think that's a good theme and title for our message this morning, that we are to be imitators of God in all that we do, uh, which is no small thing. Okay, being like God, I mean, I'm sure we're all aware of this, you know, it's not easy. Uh, maybe you've worked for people who thought they were God, right? Uh, but actually trying to be God, be like God is not simple, it's not easy. Um, Telling people what to do is quite easy. Running other people's lives in that sense, being sovereign dictator may be easy. But really being like God is not, because that's, in essence, not really what God is like. Uh, he is those things. But in his character and nature, he is much different. In fact, he goes on and he explains what God is like. He says, uh, you know, be imitators of God because you're his dear children. Uh, live filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself for us as a sacrifice and a pleasing aroma. Uh, being an imitator of God means living and doing as God does and did. And it's interesting that he frames this in the context of being imitators of God as his dearly beloved children. And I think that's a great picture because, uh, you know, when you think about families and kids and especially small children, uh, if you've had or been around small kids, you know that kids learn by imitating and copying their parents. Um, sadly, they learn everything, not just the good things, right? They kind of learn everything. But uh, kids love to copy their parents. That's what they do. They love to play in a small scale what we do in a big scale. In fact, it's fun. Emma, um, our little Emma, has been making her own toys lately, which is great fun. And uh, she yesterday made a refrigerator, out of a cardboard box and a stove out of a cardboard box and, uh, you know, to play what she sees her mom doing, cooking and making food. And um, she got a little box a while back, just a little wooden, like, treasure box. Well, for her, it wasn't a treasure box. She converted it into a laptop, right? Because that's, for her, seemed much more practical. It's working. She'll sit there and she'll send emails, right? And that's what kids do. They copy us. They watch our lives and they imitate and mimic us. In fact, the Greek word that's used here is the word we get the word mimic from. And it just means to copy. And we're to do that to God as a dearly loved child, much as our own children copy and imitate us. We are to take on, in, in copying and imitating, God's nature and characteristics and heart and values. And he does make very clear what those values are. Now, obviously, we can't imitate God in every capacity. There are a lot of things about God we can never copy. We cannot be everywhere at once. Okay, now, some of us try it, right? Being in lots of places at one time can't be done. Uh, we cannot be all-knowing, all right? Even though as parents we make our kids think we're all-knowing, right? 
But we, uh, we can't copy God in all of his uh, infinite attributes. But in certain things, we can very much copy his heart and his activity in the world. And he spells that out real clearly when he says, be like Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example. And to imitate God is ultimately to be an imitator of Christ. Uh, and Jesus pictures for us what it is to copy and imitate God in human form. Uh, he laid aside and chose not to exercise all of his divine attributes, poured himself into human flesh, emptied himself, became a servant. And as such, he's an example for us of what it means to live uh, and imitate God. And he does it in two key ways. First of all, it says that he freely and willingly gave up his life for us. Okay, to imitate God means to freely and willingly give our lives up to others. That's what Jesus did for us. Uh, he came to this earth and he willingly went to the cross for you and I in love. Okay? So for us to be an imitator of God, it means that we're people who willingly give our lives away sacrificially in service and love to benefit other people. Right? Simple, right? Piece of cake. We may not be able to be all-knowing, but surely we could do this. Just give our lives away unselfishly devoted to helping and serving others. Um, that's what Jesus did. Uh, he not only did that, but also it says that his life was an offering to God. Uh, in, in giving himself to us, he turned his life into an offering that, that Paul says was a sweet-smelling sweet aroma to God. But in his service, in his selflessness, in his sacrificial giving... He did it not only for us, but it was an offering to honor and bless God. So there's in a nutshell what it means to imitate Christ. You want to know what Jesus would do? You know, a few years back there was a big campaign. What would Jesus do? We had songs. We had bracelets. Um, we had all kinds of fun stuff. <clears throat> what would Jesus do? It's really quite simple. You live selflessly in devotion and service to others. Um, so that's the positive part. And he goes from that picture. Okay, so here's this picture of Jesus emptying, giving himself away, loving us selflessly. Right? And then he switches gears, like going from forward at 100 miles an hour to full, full bore reverse. With the next verse. Therefore, let no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed be among you. Okay? And in this next passage, he spells out some things that we in the world, to be imitators of God, to be loving others, need to really be careful to avoid, to make sure there's not any part of our life. And he names three things, sexual impurity or sexual immorality, impurity and greed or covetousness, as a lot of Bibles translate. In other words, he says, you're going to be imitators of God, you've got to clean up your life. You have got to clean up the, uh, the practices and habits of your life. All right, um, And he names three specific things. The first one, sexual impurity, sexual immorality, is the Greek word we get the word pornography from, pornea. Uh, and it has to do, and it, it meant in its original context, uh, you know, it's translated in the good old King James, um, fornication. Okay, And for the longest time when I was a kid growing up, I wasn't sure what that word meant, you know. What is, what is it to be fornicating? Well, it really means any kind of direct, explicit 
sexual activity that God said you shouldn't be doing, which would be any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. That's what the word implies. Uh, it means premarital sex. It means any kind of marital infidelity or unfaithfulness, uh, any kind of marital affairs. It, it, it includes any kind of gay or lesbian relationships, even in marriage. Sorry to all those who think this is okay if you're married. Uh, clearly in Greek New Testament times, that word would have covered any kind of perverted, deviant sexual activity, which even in sick Rome, uh, homosexual sexual relations was considered uh, deviant, perverted, twisted. Uh, any kind of perversion of God's intended design for sex. Okay, That's what the word encompasses. Um, secondly, uses another word, impurity. It's a little wider or broader word. Um, and I think in this context especially, Paul has in mind all the other things that have to do with sex that don't involve the actual acts of sex. Okay, so things like lust, fantasy, um, indulging in our, a thought life that is impure, um, any kind of wrong relationship that you may be in, though you may not be in it for sexual reasons, but it's still wrong. Okay, it's still an affair. It's still outside of the context and boundaries of, of marriage, for example. Uh, pornography would fall into this category. Uh, it may not involve an actual physical other person, but it's, it's clearly impure. It's filling our minds with these things that God says are impure and, and, and unholy. Uh, every kind of thing in our culture and world that feeds and fuels impure thoughts and desires. Okay, and so this can go anything from, um, you know, well, basically watching commercials. You know, I go to the you go to the movie theater and you see the previews and you know, they're horrible. Okay, all of this, all this stuff that feeds and fuels in our mind fantasies and imaginations and thoughts and desires of things that clearly. God does not approve of, that God does not ordain. In fact, uh, he's, so, he's so adamant about this that he says these things shouldn't even be mentioned, shouldn't literally be named among you. He says, not only should you not be practicing and participating in these things, and again, I think Paul, as, as is much of the case in the book of Ephesians, he's thinking not just individually in our lives, but collectively as the body of Christ. He's saying within the church, within the body of Christ, these these immoral practices should not even be named among you. You as, as the body of Christ, as the church, should have such a pure and spotless reputation that when people from the outside look in, they see us as a people who abstain from every kind of impurity and immorality. Okay, we live differently in terms of sexual purity and standards. Uh, in fact, he goes on, he says, we shouldn't even joke about it. We shouldn't even be... Or even our conversation shouldn't reflect this kind of attitude. Our speech itself should be pure and free from all this junk. Uh, I remember when I was a youth pastor way, way back a long time ago, uh, a youth pastor of uh, middle school kids. And uh, one of the words that's used here for coarse joking has the idea of uh, jokes that, you know, where you, you, you have kind of double meaning words. And uh, if you've ever been around people who are just, their mind is just perverted. They're just, their mind is constantly twisted. They're always turning everything into some kind of, you know, uh, 
sexual connotation. And I remember I was, I was youth pastoring this group of uh, middle school kids, and several of these boys, it's like I couldn't say anything. And they would turn it into some sexual reference, which made it really difficult teaching the Bible when they would turn everything into some perverted joke. And you just wanted to like rip their tongues out, actually, because it got just annoying. And he says, that shouldn't, that shouldn't that be a part of us. You know, we shouldn't be telling dirty jokes. We shouldn't be laughing at dirty jokes. We shouldn't be... He says, it's so, it's so much not to be a part of what we are as believers. We shouldn't even joke about it. Uh, which has interesting, I think, implications for us as we, uh, as we join in the conversations in TVs and movies and books and magazines. You know, how much do we participate... And the world's joking and talking lightly and conversation about sex. Because it is everywhere. And as we watch movies, as we bring this stuff into our homes, as we show it to our kids, it says it shouldn't be a part of your life. You shouldn't, you shouldn't play with this stuff. Okay? It should not in any way, he says, it should not be named among you. Okay? So Paul's, Paul's making some very clear boundaries here about the world's view and take on sexuality and the way the church and believers ought to view sexuality and immorality and impurity. All right? And it's a problem. In, in Ephesus and in, in Paul's day, it was a problem because in society had so twisted and distorted and perverted sexuality that it was everywhere, much like it is today, where it's just everywhere. It's just everywhere. And it takes a great deal of effort to extract ourselves from all that and remove ourselves from all that and live different kind of lives. Well, there's a third word that he uses, which uh, at first doesn't seem to fit. And he's clearly got in his mind and he's thinking immorality, impurity, sexual immorality, lust, evil desire. And then he throws in another word, the word, uh, you should not be greedy. No, no, sexual immorality or impurity or greed. A lot of Bibles translate the word covetous. Okay? Now, how do you feel about the word covetous? It's one of those words that I feel like, I'm not quite sure what it means, but I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with me. All right? I don't feel covetous. <laughs> uh, so I'm pretty sure I'm off the hook on this one, right? But what really, what is this word? What is this word? Well, it comes from a Greek word, that means simply, it's two Greek words put together, that means more and to have. Uh, it simply means to have more. Okay? Wanting more stuff. That's what the word means. Desire or craving for things. Hungering and craving for more. That can be used certainly of sexual desire. It can be used in, in the connotation of wanting, uh, you know, wanting more sexual encounters, wanting, lusting after more sexual experiences. But it really can be used of anything. And really what, probably a much better translation of this word would be in our modern context, would be to just translate the word materialism. Don't be materialistic. Okay? Now this word, I, this word I do understand. Okay? I'll go, let's go back to covetous. <laughs> okay, that one sounds safer. I don't know what it means, so I'm pretty sure I'm not guilty. But materialism, that comes much closer to home. Materialism, consumerism. Uh, it's the idea that uh, we live for things. 
That we live for stuff. That we fill our lives with stuff and possessions. Okay? Now this one strikes much closer to home. It's much more painful. Interestingly enough, we all... It's, these two things both have greatly pervaded society and culture. But which one has had a deeper, more penetrating impact? Sex or materialism? Well, I'll tell you what, I think materialism has, and here's why. Uh, I love when the news gives me uh, you know, illustrations for my sermon. And this last week, you know, Tiger Woods comes out, he's been cheating on his wife. Uh, yet another athlete is not walking as a good Christian person should. And I don't know why this confuses people in the world so much. You know, only Christians are the Christians today are the only ones who claim that sexual purity in a married relationship is a valid value, right? Okay, Christians are the only ones who say this is something people should be doing. But it's a bit ironic. Whenever anybody falls into any kind of immorality, society as a whole is just shocked. Oh my goodness. Our, our hero that we look up to is not perfect. Well, why should he be? And he doesn't go to church. He doesn't name Jesus as his, as his master. He lives in a world that is in every way perverted and twisted and sexually immoral. Right? Why shouldn't he? Right? There's nothing in society that says you shouldn't. Except, in our society, there are some boundaries. Right? Even, even for this, there are some boundaries. Right? I saw this. I don't know if you saw this. They... One of his girlfriends came forward, all bent out of shape, uh, a tiger, and kind of confessed that she was one of his girlfriends. And the reason she was upset and the reason she came forward because she found out she wasn't the only girlfriend. And she felt horribly betrayed because even though she was helping him cheat on his wife, he was cheating on somebody else and she was, she was wounded by this. It's like, oh my word, are you serious? Right? Are you serious? And, and uh, she felt hurt because there were other women. You are the other woman. What are you thinking? But she was and on national TV. You should. It's you know. It's on the internet. You should look it up. It's just mind-boggling, right? But there's something about sexuality that still has boundaries, even in our twisted cultures, even in as far as we've taken it. There's still are limits. However, has anybody ever said anything? about Tiger Woods' excessive lifestyle. Has anybody said, can you believe the excessive wealth and extravagance of his home and his tons of cars and all of his possessions and huge, you know, 97 gazillimeter big screen TVs and the excessiveness of materialism in his life. Has anybody criticized that? Would that make the news? Wouldn't make the news. Why? Well, because when we, where we still see that there might be boundaries to cross in the area of sexual morality, there are no boundaries when it comes to materialism. Right? There are no limits. Because it's, in our society, it's absolutely not considered in any way wrong. It is the, the right of our modern age. We've worked for it. We earned this money. Uh, we deserve it. And it's our right to spend what we earn any way we want and to fill our lives with stuff. In fact, not only is it not wrong, but it is ultimately the dream and ideal of life. It is the goal of life in the modern world to fill our lives with stuff. That's what life is about. Fill our lives with more and more stuff. And every country in the poor and developing world look to the wealthy countries as the ideal and hope 
that they can someday aspire to. That this is the meaning of life, to fill our lives with stuff. And the sad thing is that this has so much crept into the world, into our society, that it has just flooded the church. And, you know, we, we as Christians buy into this. And I, I speak to myself, okay? I'm not pointing fingers, believe me, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. Uh, that this is life, okay? That we work for it, it's our stuff. I have a right to fill my life with things. And here Paul says these words, and he links together these words. Sexual immorality, every kind of impurity, and materialism. Do not let these things be named among you. Do not, do not even, they should be so far from your life. Right? Um, you know, I love in our modern world to help us cope with this because, uh, you know, you've got to justify all these things, right? And uh, it is amazing how as believers we have justified our materialistic lives. And, and the, the line of reasoning kind of goes like this. Uh, you know, we, we do want stuff and we realize that we've filled our lives with stuff and that our lives, are, our houses, our world are just filled with things. And we want more things, right? And uh, television, advertising, everything tells us we need more things. And it points out that we're miserable, wretched people because we don't have these things, right? And so we, we feel like we've got to bolster our pathetic lives by buying these things. But as Christians, we... we we got to keep this in balance, okay? We don't want to be extreme. We have to have balance. So we tell ourselves it's all right to have things as long as they don't become an idol, right? That's the, that's the balance. I can have things in my life as long as they don't become an idol. And I can assure you I'm not covetous. Therefore, these things have not become an idol, right? And so as long as I want God more than I want things, we're all okay. We're off the hook. Right? Does that sound good? Sounds great to me. Um, and besides that, God, you know, God has blessed us. Um, you know, it's not it's not only that, um, you know, that that we don't really want these things as much as God, but surely isn't it part of God's blessing in our life? Um, we have been good, right? And so we deserve it. You know, God is blessing us. And so it's good that, you know, it's not my fault that the poor suckers, you know, in Burma don't have, aren't as blessed as we are. Maybe they should repent, right? And then God will bless them like he's blessed us, right? Uh, in fact, to take it even further, you know, there are streams of the church that say not only is it God's blessing, but it's actually the absolute sign of God's goodness in our life, that you're not really experiencing the fullness of the Christian life unless you are blessed and prosperous. After all, that's what it teaches in the Old Testament, right? That God would prosper you. So if you're actually not wealthy, you are a sinner. So our wealth and our maturity is actually proof that we're godly, right? Well, there you go. We're off the hook. Okay, so Paul was just confused here. He was just confused. Right? He needs to read the Old Testament. We have a right to be materialistic. Well, on top of that, let me ask one more thing. See, he said, when Paul makes it very clear, materialism, sexual immorality, should not be named among us. But I want to ask one more question, and this may sound kind of shocking, I hope. But really, I want to ask the question, 
what is the big deal? Why is this such a problem? Right? Um, why is God so against sex? Why is God so against materialism? You know, I can understand murder. You know, in murder, somebody dies. Right? And that's a problem for somebody. Right? So I can understand that one. <laughs> I can see why God's not real big on the whole killing each other thing. Right? Uh, stealing. You know, it, it, it's taking what belongs. It's taking other people's stuff for yourself. Now, clearly, that's a problem, right? Because it's their stuff. You don't mess with other people's stuff. Uh, but sex and materialism, why, why is this such a big deal? Uh, you know, if, if you uh, have an affair, you know, Tiger Woods or whoever, anybody has an affair, you're not really hurting anybody. You know, they aren't causing bloodshed. Uh, if two consenting adults... Uh, want to enjoy what God has created, why is that such a big deal? Why is God so against this? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I taught for a while at, at Grace International School. I coached and worked with a lot of high school students. And, and this is a legitimate question that a lot of high school students ask. And oftentimes their answer is that God just doesn't like us to have fun. That the reason is that God doesn't want us to really enjoy anything. That, that Christianity ought to be miserable. And that that's just too much fun. And God doesn't want us to have that much fun. And, uh, and it doesn't make sense. Right? It doesn't make sense. Uh, and now, now Paul's telling us, as long as we not have sex whenever we want, we can't have toys either. I mean, it really makes God ought to be a cosmic killjoy. Why... Why is God so against you and I enjoying life? Why is it God wants us to be miserable? That's what it sounds like, right? What is the big deal? Uh, does God is it really that evil and bad? Uh, apparently, it must not, because if you listen to everything the world says, the world asks that question, and I don't know that the church has really given a very good answer, right? We say, well, it's evil. Well, how is it evil, right? How is it hurting anybody? How is it harming, you know, if I have more toys than somebody else has? Uh, what is the problem? Well, Paul says in verse 6, Don't be fooled by those who try to exercise these sins. He says, be very careful of those who try to deceive you by telling you this stuff is all right. All right? And the reality is the world does ask those questions. And, and I know, and if, if you're a parent of a high school or middle school student, I guarantee your kids have asked those questions. Right? Because kids at school are asking those questions. And they're talking about it. And they, they want to know what's so bad about it. If, if sex is so good, then why is it so bad? Right? Paul says, be very careful. Because there are those out there, and basically the world or society at large, is excusing this behavior by saying there's nothing wrong with it. By saying it's okay. By saying, I'm not hurting anybody. We're not, we're not hurting. We're consenting adults, you know. It doesn't hurt anybody. How can it be wrong? Okay, how can having fun be wrong? How could God be against us enjoying things? How would you answer that? Well, this is how Paul answers it. 
he says simply, uh, he, this is what he says, is you can be sure of this. You can be sure of this. No immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. So don't be fooled. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Well, first off, let's set one thing clear, that it is evil, and it brings God's judgment. God said the people that, that habitually practice, people who live this kind of lifestyle, will never enter God's kingdom or the kingdom of Christ. Uh, probably a reference to neither experiencing God's kingdom here and now, as well as God's future kingdom in eternity. Not only that, but he says that those people are, even now, under God's wrath. Now, this is kind of heavy words, and especially for Christians who are playing with impurity and immorality. Now, let me say this. Paul is not saying here that if you're a believer and you fall into sexual sin, that you're instantly going to hell. Okay? He doesn't say that. What he says is people who practice this thing, practice this as a part of their life, people who own this lifestyle cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay? That children of light and children of darkness are different. And that if you are a child of light, your lifestyle will be different. Now, does it mean we can't fall and fail? Well, it definitely means that. I mean, we can fall and fail, and we do. Uh, you know, if, if I could not go to heaven because I had impure thoughts, believe me, I would be well disqualified. Okay? Uh, that's not what it means. But he says that if this is the ongoing course of our life, then there's a problem. The light is not in you. We talked about that more. We'll look at that next week. Um, but he also says that the, the root problem is this. This is the reason it's evil. It's not that God does not want you to have fun. Okay, believe me, that is not the problem. The problem is that, he says, when it comes down to it, it is idolatry. That's the issue. The issue is not whether or not you get to enjoy life or have fun or uh, you know, get what you want. The real issue at stake is idolatry. Who and what are we worshiping? And he says specifically about the word greed or materialism, this craving and wanting more and more and more. He says it is idolatry. What does he mean by that? Well, Idolatry is a false god, right? It means having a god that we worship over and above the true living God of Scripture. Okay, so so you say, well, okay, so if I worship God first, then I can have stuff, right? And it's okay. And he says, no, this is, it doesn't work that way because one thing, stuff and God, is a conflict of interest. You can't want stuff and God. If you do... It's idolatry. Now let me explain it this way. Now to us, uh, in fact even for me, it took me for a while to come up with a good reason why this was idolatry. Okay, Why can't I just worship God and have stuff and want stuff? Well, here's why. Put it this way. Okay, He puts this in the context of sexual infidelity. All right? He puts these words together because I think they fit together in concept. Like this. Suppose you were to come home one day, you're a husband faithfully married for a lot of years, and you come home and you tell your wife, you know, dear, I love you. I love you a lot. I love you more than any other woman in the world. But I want you to know that I love other women, too. 
And I want to enjoy sexual pleasure with other women. Now, it doesn't mean I don't love you the most. Okay, I just, I just want to experience more. Right? How, how would a wife feel about that? Well, how would you feel after she beans you on the head with the frying pan? You know? Not good. All right? Because this is what it communicates. It does not communicate that I love you more than anything else. It communicates that I, I love you some, but you're not enough. Okay, you are not enough. And you're okay, and I like you a lot, and, and certainly I like you more than the others. But you're not enough. You can't meet my needs. You can't satisfy me. You can't be an adequate companion for me. I need more. Well, in essence, that's what we, exactly what we say to God. When we find ourselves caught up in the web of materialism, we are saying to God, God, you're good. I worship you. I want you to be the best. It's just too bad you're not enough. I need more. And there's more good things out there than just you. Don't you know? <laughs> okay, You're not the only thing, God. There is more. And by giving everything to you alone, I am missing out on things in the world. This is the, and the thing is, sometimes people who are not committed to Christ understand this better, better than people who claim to be committed to Christ. And here's what I mean. A lot of people who aren't committed to Christ are not committed to Christ because they know that to commit to Christ means they have to give up the pleasure and things in their life, and they don't want to do it, right? They're not willing to walk away from those things and turn to God because they know that to turn to God is to leave behind the sin that they're living in. And you see, you can't have both. Jesus made it very clear. He said in, in Matthew chapter 6, let me read. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Don't store up for yourself material possessions here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store up treasures in heaven where moths cannot eat and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, wherever your possessions is, there the desires of your heart will be. And to make it clear that we can't have both, he says later, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, You can't claim allegiance to God and want other things. It's the fundamental problem of Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay, Satan comes to them. God says, you've you got to follow me and me alone. you got to, you know... You can eat from everything, but you can't have this one thing. And Satan turned that around and he said, Look, God's holding back from you good things. God's good, but there's things out there you're missing out on. right? And they saw that it looked good, it was appealing, it was desirable. And they what? They wanted it. They wanted it. You see, the, the fundamental problem that will compete with our true worship to God is our want. When we want anything other than God Himself. Um, because ultimately we're saying that Jesus cannot fulfill our life. That there's other things out there that will bring me happiness and joy and contentment and fulfillment beyond God Himself. 
And you see, that's not what true worship is. True worship is putting God not just above everything, but as everything. Okay? To truly worship God and not have idols means that God is everything. Not just above, not just you know, the top on our shelf, on our large shelf of wants and desires and needs. It means that what we look to alone to fulfill and meet our needs, to fill us, to complete us, to give us joy, to protect us, is God and God alone. Never God and. Okay? So, you know, what are we to do with this? And as you think through this, it's like, well, man, this is kind of heavy. What do you do with this? Right? Now, in some aspect, we understand what to do in terms of the sexual sin. We're supposed to flee from it, right? Flee from sexual temptation. We understand that to some extent we're to structure our lives so that we avoid these kind of temptations. And I hope you do that. I believe we should. You, we should be very careful the kind of things we watch on TV. We've got to be very careful uh, how we use our computers. And it's just staggering the statistics about the number of people involved in Internet pornography among pastors, among church leaders, among Christians. Okay? I'll tell you what, it's, I'm so thankful that was not there when I was 20 years old, 25 years old. Uh, I didn't have to deal with that because I, I would not have passed that test. Uh, we've got to send up clear boundaries and parameters to protect ourselves from this barrage of stuff that's so easily accessible. So we've got to flee from it. Uh, you know, there are certain places in the city of Chiang Mai you should not go after, like, dark, okay, alone. As, and, you know, you just don't go there, all right, alone, all right? Uh, protect ourselves from relationships that could cause us to stumble or sin or fall. Okay, that's easy. But the reality is, doing that does not solve the problem. Uh, I can speak from great experience that you can do all that and still struggle in your heart with lust and, and desire for sexually impure things. Right? How do you get away from your own heart? Right? How do you get away from your own thoughts? How do you get away from your own brain? Um, second thing, you know, what do we do with our possessions? Are we supposed to give away? Is, is this saying we have to do like Jesus told the rich man? Should we give away everything we own? Is that the solution? Is that what this is saying? That we should not own anything? Um, it may not be a bad idea. Uh, I worked for St. Francis of Assisi. You know, he just walked away, took the shirt off his back, actually, walked out shirtless into the snow and cold, and it was the happiest day of his life. He said he was so liberated. Chances are, you know, a lot of us could give away a lot of stuff and find ourselves quite liberated. Um, but the same problem is true. Does that really deal with the problem? Okay, if we get rid of stuff, does it mean we're not just going to want more stuff? Right? Does it mean we're just not going to want to replace what we gave away? Or long for it that we lost it? Right? How do we deal with our heart? So that's the real issue. Is It's not so much about the external things that are symptoms. It's about our heart. How do we change, fundamentally change our heart so that we're no longer desiring Sexual immorality, things that we know are wrong, stuff, okay, 
as we see it advertised and as we you know, drive by every shop and every thing. How do you change your heart? See, that's the problem. That's the issue. Um, I don't, by the way, let me just say, I don't think it solves anything to give away everything you own. You can't live life that way, you know? Um, unless you're really going to just be a monk. You know, if you're going to go out, be single, not have children, live in a temple, and go out, you know, here in Thailand it's great. If you go out every morning at 6 o'clock, they give you rice. It can be done here. Um, and I'm not saying that may not be, for some of you, a good option, okay? God calls you to that. There's, there's a, there's a, it, it's probably a much better life than anything we'll ever come to, okay? Uh, the simplicity of that, I think we would find God in some incredible ways. But for most of us, it's not practical. It's not an option. The reality is we have to, we're not going to, we're not going to walk everywhere. We need cars. We, we, we must communicate with the world. We need computers. We need some things to live, okay? I'm not saying that uh, we've got to give everything away. But this is what Paul does say. He says, uh, These things shouldn't be named among you. You shouldn't be telling obscene stories and foolish, coarse jokes. Instead, let there be thankfulness. Instead, be thankful. <laughs> And I really believe that this is a radical truth that's so easy to just overlook because it seems too simplistic. But I really believe that the thing that will change our hearts and alter us more than anything else is to learn a spirit of thankfulness that we live moment by moment in constant thankfulness and thanksgiving to God. Um, And here's why. Because at the root of both lust, evil desire, sexual immorality, and greed is the sense that what I have is not enough. The only antidote for that is to decide that what I have is very much enough and to be very thankful for it. In fact, a strong component of thanksgiving is knowing that what we have is really more than what we deserve, right? Gratitude comes when, you know, uh, at the end of the month you get your paycheck. You're not grateful for that. But there's a bonus. Stuff you didn't expect or deserve. And you feel gratitude for that, right? If we come to the place of knowing that everything we have in our life is by God's grace and is a gift from His good and loving heart and we feel gratitude for everything that we have because it's way more than what we deserve or should have. Those are the first steps to changing your heart. Uh, When we are truly thankful, we are acknowledging that God is the source of all that is good. Okay, being thankful means acknowledging that everything that God is good and that as James says, every good and perfect gift comes from Him. That if I don't have it and God hasn't given it to me, maybe it's really not a good thing for me. Right? That God will bless us with every good thing and that God wants us to have good things. God does want to bless and prosper us. Okay? But He defines that probably much differently than we do and He knows what's good for us. And so we learn to be, to acknowledge He is the source of everything. Right? Third thing, uh, being thankful means learning to be content. Uh, and this is a huge one. Realizing that today everything I have really is enough. And the perspective here is that if God is really all you want, you always have enough, right? You'll never run out of God. If all you long to have in your life is to, is to be filled with Him, 
That is the one uh, consuming desire of your life, is to be filled with God. You'll never be disappointed, and you'll never run short. right? Because if you are absolutely penniless, destitute, broke, poor, and homeless, you will still have God. And so learning to be, as Paul said, learning to be content in plenty and in nothing. Learning that I have everything I ever need in God. And that comes from a grateful heart. Lastly, uh, and most importantly, really deciding that what we need in our life more than anything is God. And understanding that all these things are always a cheap substitute for what God really is. Uh, It comes down to a, a belief that either God can truly fulfill me, or He can't. And if God's not capable, then I will look to other things to make me happy. Or I will be convinced and believe fully and firmly that God is everything. That He will fill me completely and satisfy me in ways beyond anything in this world can. And then those things won't be so important to me anymore. Because God will be everything. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, come before you this morning just aware of how, how our own culture, our own society, uh, just is so driven by needs and wants and greed. And Lord, we confess that it really has crept into the church, um, that even church itself becomes a, a scramble, a mad scramble to to give people what they want. And Lord, there's this pressure that if we can't give people what they want, they'll go to another church where they'll find what they want. And Lord, that would be great if what people really wanted was you. But sadly, it's not. And Lord, we, we just ask that you would help us to evaluate our own hearts and lives right now. Lord, are you really the one consuming thing that we want above everything to the exclusion of all else? Lord, as we say in the wedding vows, do you take this person to be your only love to the exclusion of all others? Lord, in our relationship with you, is that, uh, is that our heart? And Lord, where it's not, I pray that your light would shine upon us and convict us Lord, that we would lay down these idols, these idols of materialism and stuff and things and immorality and sex. Lord, those things cannot make us happy. They can't truly satisfy us. Only you can. So Lord, help us to look to you alone to be the fullness of our life. And we ask all this and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.